a specific subset of population which happens to be interstate motorists. Uh, the study that we did, though, will focus uh, uh, mainly on interstates, but I, I want you to keep in mind that this is more generalizable to really any secondary highway or roadway that's out there. Um, so while this study focuses on interstate tornadoes and, and the associated vulnerability of travelers, it, it is generalizable for, for the most part. Um, one of the, we'll go ahead and jump in and, and just take a quick look at the review. Uh, one of the first things that we have to do really in order to establish the threat and the vulnerability uh, of interstate motorists is to quantify the number of tornadoes that either impact tornadoes or sorry, impact interstates or impact vehicles on the roadway. It, it's kind of the first stepping stone, the first building block that we had to do. Uh, from there, we were able to look at any specific circumstances that enhance that threat. So somebody's driving on the highway, is there a situation where travel density is higher, or is there night versus day? What, what kind of circumstances might be uh, leading to a, a higher threat of an impact with the tornado? Uh, from there, we take a look at what recommended protective actions are in place uh, for motorists out there. And this kind of goes back to the uh, uh, discussion that we'll have is, is staying in your car better or going to a ditch better. Uh, we'll take a look at hopefully answering some of those uh, scenarios for you as well. And then at the end, what can be done to improve our message and services with new technologies out there for travelers? So that's, that's kind of the overview of what we'll be looking at here. This is not a good site. Uh, this is actually back in 2008, uh, May 22nd, and what you're looking at here is Interstate 70. And I'm going to go ahead and take a show of hands here. Let's say, uh, let's say you're this car here or this car here. Uh, do we know what we would do in this situation? This is certainly not one we want to be in. But uh, who would stay in their car at this stage? Ha show of hands. About, about a 10%. Who, who would go in a ditch? Okay. No, that, that's, that's the next question. Who would floor it? Okay. All right. Who would turn around and go the opposite way on this, on this way? Uh, a couple of, so really, though, the, what, what we're seeing is that there's a whole different subset and, and spectrum of, of what we would do in that situation. And really, at this time, it's not the time to really have a game plan because panic is going to set in when you're 50 yards away from an EF4 tornado. Um, so that, that's kind of one of the things we'll look at there uh, and, and the different challenges that are associated with that. This was an interesting uh, news clip uh, out of Kansas City uh, from about a year ago. This, uh, this lady and her uh, family, including an, an elderly woman, uh, saw a tornado. It was about 100 yards wide in width, so it wasn't a very large tornado. And, and it was coming kind of towards the interstate. And, and what her plan of action in this case uh, was that she parked. She was, she was on the westbound lane, and they ran across six lanes of interstate traffic to go to the south side of the interstate to take shelter in a water-filled ditch. That's, that was her plan. Whether it was the right one or not, it's hard to say, but she, she said a real interesting quote, and this is kind of the challenge associated. She says, we're from Missouri and we get tornadoes. We have a basement, but not on the highway. And I think that really il illustrates the challenge uh, of what we're dealing with here is that this is somebody that's educated. They know what they're supposed to do when they're at home. You know, go to the basement, go to the interior room away from windows, but it's a whole different ball game when you're away from your familiar surroundings. And let's say, in this case, she's traveling from Columbia to Denver. She probably doesn't know where Quinter, Kansas is. 
So this is just kind of a challenge uh, that we, we, we take a look at. One of the other reasons we wanted to look at interstate tornadoes is just by the sheer, sheer nature of travel density, we've seen an increase since 1990. Our study starts in 1990 and will continue through 08. And we've seen since then on the central and southeastern United States interstates, uh, a 50, virtually a 60% increase in travel growth since 1990 that generally breaks down to about 3% an annual increase per year. So we continuously see more and more traffic on our area interstates. So what we do know is that motorists on these interstates have an increased threat uh, to severe weather hazards, in this case specifically tornadoes. Uh, the other thing is motorists, as we well know, lack immediate access to a suitable shelter. Uh, you don't really have a whole lot of basements waiting for you in the middle of nowhere on Interstate 70 or on Interstate 80 just outside of uh, North Platte heading towards Hershey. There's not a whole lot out there. Uh, so that's one of the biggest challenges is that what we recommend in the Weather Service, find that interior room away from windows on the lowest floor, underground shelter, basement, whatever the case, that's just not existing when you're out there traveling. Uh, the other thing that we talked about is there's a few uh, opportunities to change the direction of travel or just exit off the interstate. Um, you know, again, heading west out of uh, Grand Island. You might go 10, 15 miles before you actually have an exit to get off the interstate. And in some cases, there's actually concrete barriers in, in, in different interstates that don't allow you to turn around. Maybe the median's too deep where you'll actually get stuck in the ditch if you did try to drive around. And maybe, let's say you're traveling westbound and you see a tornado, you say, I'm not staying here. I'm just going to go back east on this same road. Well, then all of a sudden the traffic hazards associated with that could be even greater than the tornado itself. And that actually happened in the 79 Wichita Falls tornado. People were going everywhere. People were driving through cornfields. People were driving opposite flows of traffic. It was apparently just complete chaos out there. So again, this, this is one of these very chaotic scenes when you have to make a decision really quick. The other thing that travelers are limited on is the ability to obtain convective warnings, or perhaps they're unaware or unable to access the few existing mobile services that are going to provide that tornado warning information. So it's again, you might have a, a weather radio at home or kind of your, your routine down of your uh, several ways to receive weather information at home, but if you think about it, it does kind of change once you start hitting the road. Um, the thing we kind of briefly touched on, travelers are likely unfamiliar with local towns and counties uh, referenced in warnings, even if they have access to that warning information. As you well know, when the Weather Service puts out a tornado warning, we have a list of cities that we say are in the path. Who knows where Moralton, Arkansas is? Show of hands. Okay, so we got two, three. Yeah, no, that's not, that's not a, a good statistic there. So if y'all were traveling through Arkansas on I-40, and I put out a tornado warning for you, and I said, okay, the tornado's expected to be near Moralton by 3.30 p.m. Well, what does that mean to you? Probably not a whole lot, because you don't know where Moralton is, unless you got a paper map, and then you can fumble around with that. But So there, is there a better way to communicate where that tornado's going to be? And the other th reason we wanted to look at interstates for this study is that interstates hold generally a, a fairly constant stream of vehicles uh, throughout the time, pr throughout pretty much the entire day. This is, this is very interesting because this is different than what we see in the tornado database we collect in the Weather Service. It's called storm data. There's some challenges, though, especially when you go back to, to previous years, even past 2000. What you start seeing is a pretty decent tornado record in urban areas, but in rural areas, it's, it's pretty underrepresented or undercounted, if you will, just because the eyewitnesses aren't there to see them. Interstates is a little bit different 
are, are a little bit different just simply because there's always eyes out there driving around. So if you kind of focus on interstates, you have a little bit better uniform distribution of tornadoes that you can study and gain something from those statistics. So this is the methodology that we looked at. Nebraska is pretty much smack dab in the middle of our study, so hopefully some of this will be, will be interesting to you here. Uh, the study period that we picked was uh, January 1st of 1990 all the way through the end of December in 2008, so roughly 19 years that we looked at. Uh, the total number of interstate routes during this entire domain, 115, and the number of uh, un, uh, interstate miles that were un, uh, overlap or not overlapping uh, turned out to be a little bit over 24,000 miles of roadway. So generally the study is defined from uh, east of the Rocky Mountains or east of the Continental Divide all the way to just west of the Appalachian Mountains uh, that cut through oh, just near Birmingham and up that way. So generally speaking, this is the area that we looked at. And if you look at actually tornado climatology, this region on average accounts for 80% of the tornadoes in the United States. So this is a pretty good sample uh, that we can generalize from there across most other areas. And here's the stats right here, all plotted out. These are the tornadoes that occurred during a 19-year period that we looked at that crossed interstates. There was a lot of quality control issues that went in here, and obviously, as you can imagine, this took quite a while to put together, but the record is fairly solid at this stage here. So these are the tornadoes that occurred. Uh, you range from one in Montana that crossed an interstate uh, to 74 in Texas. So uh, that's, that's kind of your range, if you will, uh, throughout the area. And of course, you can see some areas, kind of what we talked about, again, some of the urban areas you can see are kind of lit up like a Christmas tree. So that's kind of the challenge and why we wanted to stay as close as we could to interstates and not go out in, let's say, southwest Kansas near Liberal or something along those lines. Uh, Nebraska, as you can see, has a felt, uh, healthy number there. Uh, now, once we normalize this, though, it tells us a little bit more. As you would expect, Texas should have the most number of tornadoes. Why? Because it's really big and has a lot of roadway. Same thing with Illinois. They have tons of interstates up there. But if you normalize it uh, per, per amount of miles per roadway, this is what you end up getting. So this is normalized distribution of torna interstate tornadoes by state per 100 miles of roadway. And this is the breakdown that you get here. Uh, Nebraska was actually close to being in this shaded yellow. The shaded yellow is simply just one and a half times the domain, uh, and the uh, orangish color is two times the domain average. So that's what you're seeing here. The thing to take away, though, from this graphic is that this fits pretty nicely the mold of other tornado climatological studies that we've seen, which generally takes, you know, the central part of Tornado Alley is one of the big peak areas in the United States, and also kind of a horseshoe shape that swings back around across the southeastern United States from Arkansas into Alabama. This is really the tornado alley of the United States. It's not just the Central Plains. It does go ahead and go swinging to the Gulf Coast states uh, from Arkansas into Alabama all the way up into Nebraska. So as you can see here, what this would mean for Nebraska is 4.3 tornadoes per 100 miles of interstate that you'd see in, in Nebraska. So anyway, that's the distribution of how things broke down. The next thing, like I said, we wanted to take a look at is uh, motor vehicle impacts. When did these tornadoes actually end up striking uh, individuals. And uh, the striking or impacting, we had a loose definition, but more or less, it's if, we, if there was some type of record of broken windows, any kind of body damage, if a vehicle was noted to be shifted or blown off the road, maybe the vehicle was rolled, overturned, uh, maybe just completely destroyed. Whatever the case, that counted as a, a vehicle impact. Okay, so once we broke it all down, 
we had 113 uh, vehicle impact tornadoes. I want to go back to the previous uh, two slides and show you some of these numbers real quick. The total tornadoes that we had in this entire domain during that 19-year period was 19,000-plus tornadoes. Okay, that's a lot of tornadoes. From the interstate tornado perspective, 678 of those tornadoes crossed interstates. That generally equates to about 4% of all tornadoes uh, in this domain crossed interstates. So when we start breaking it down now and looking at when people got hit, out of those 600 and something uh, via, uh, tornadoes that crossed interstates, 113 of those uh, actually impacted motor vehicles. That generally accounts for 17% of all the interstate tornadoes. Generally speaking, one out of every five interstate tornadoes had a documented record of striking a motor vehicle. And the reason I kind of emphasize on existing record and documenting is because there's some pretty clear signals that, for one, maybe a tornado did impact a motor vehicle and it didn't get reported in a, some kind of official document like storm data. Maybe they broke their window and they said, I'm not waiting around here, I'm getting out of here, you know? And they drove 400 miles and never reported that their window got broken out. So this number is likely higher, uh, but for, for our purposes, we'll just say one out of every five tornadoes. So out of that, impacted vehicles, 311 is what came out of those uh, impact tornadoes. Out of that 311, 181 were actually semi-trailer trucks. Um, one of the things we definitely saw in this study is that uh, if you know anybody or, or whatnot that's driving one of these big semi-trailer trucks, just definitely not very stable when you're dealing with uh, tornadic activity. This is the EF scale distribution as Greg uh, talked about a little bit, uh, you know, obviously we classify all of our tornadoes based on uh, intensity inferred from damage. And uh, this is generally a breakdown of what we see, and I'll kind of describe some of the colors to you. Green, what you see in the green, is the United States average breakdown of intense tornadoes, okay? So we start over here on the left, EF0, which you see here, 60-something percent of those on the national average that we see in tornadoes are of that strength, EF0, weak tornadoes. So generally speaking, most of the tornadoes in the U.S. are in at least a weak to strong category. That puts it EF0 to EF3. Very rarely do we start seeing you know, EF4 or even EF5 tornadoes on, on the national average when you average everything in together. Now, looking at the red, the red is the interstate tornadoes. And we saw some interesting deviations from that. On the interstate tornadoes, we were significantly lower on the EF0 tornadoes. And in fact, that trend continued where we saw much, much higher than the national average. And then in the blue color is actually the vehicle impact tornadoes. These are the ones that actually documented to impact a vehicle on the roadway. So one of the things we first saw with this that was very intriguing about the vehicle impact tornadoes is see the, the number is so low, generally 13% of all the interstate impact tornadoes were, uh, were EF0, whereas the national average is 62%. And probably the reason for that is, does anybody know generally what the threshold of winds are on EF0 tornado? Anybody want to take a guess? 70, 80 miles an hour, exactly, 84 miles an hour or under, something along those lines, is an EF0 tornado. Do you think that's going to destroy a car? It might. It might blow a car off the road at 84 miles an hour. Good chances it won't. Uh, Semi-trucks, on the other hand, they probably will tip over with something along that lines, especially depending on the size and, and the motion of the tornado, a lot of variables with that. But long story short, when you start dealing with really weak tornadoes, 
they're going to probably have a high probability of not creating a lot of damage on a vehicle. They're certainly not going to make it where it's undrivable, okay? So that's an EF0 type intense tornado. The other thing that we saw is that the numbers were much higher when we got over to EF2 to EF5 tornadoes for just interstate tornadoes. Anybody want to take a guess of why that might be? It could be longer track storms. That's certainly a possibility. The other thing that might be going on is what traditionally do we see all around interstates versus, let's say, a cornfield near a liberal? There's more to hit, right? So what we're starting to see also on that trend is, again, all this is based on damage. EF scale, EF scale is all based on damage. So what we're actually seeing is along interstates, we've got truck stops. We've even got just small towns that are dotted across the area. Generally, population likes to follow interstates system. That's just kind of how it works out. Well, if there's more to hit, is a good chance that it's going to be rated higher than, again, a cornfield out in the middle of nowhere. And that's actually the trend that we saw with these statistics, EF2 to EF5 tornadoes. They're hitting more things. They actually get a higher rating. So that was, that was fairly interesting. To, to also look at the vulnerability, we wanted to look at the probability of a day versus nighttime tornado situation. In the red, all right, first off, this column is day, the right column is night. In the red is just your interstate tornadoes, okay, and the blue is your vehicle impact tornadoes, where those interstate tornadoes actually hit a car. And what we saw is not too surprising. During the daytime, we see more uh, tornadoes just in general. So obviously, you would see more interstate tornadoes during the daytime. The interesting thing happens over here, though, at night. Uh, obviously, there's less tornadoes at night, but we see a 9% increase in vehicle impact tornadoes at night. So this starts giving us a little hint that maybe, and this isn't really rocket scientist, maybe it's a little harder to see tornadoes at night, right? Okay? On top of that, if you think about the travel densities just all across the nation, when do people mostly travel? It's not at 10 or 11 o'clock at night. You know, typically on the interstates, it's generally speaking 6 a.m. to, say, 9 or 10 p.m. Once you get past 10 p.m., the travel volume really goes down quickly. So that's fairly interesting because all of a sudden what we're seeing is actually less people on the roadway, but still a 9% increase in people being impacted by tornadoes. So that kind of led us to believe also that, as you would expect, nighttime tornadoes do present a little bit more threat to, what, to the motorists driving on the roadway. We look at a little bit closer thing. Again, the colors mean the same thing. Red means interstate tornadoes. Blue means vehicle impact tornadoes. And this is just an hourly breakdown starting over here at midnight all the way to 11.59 p.m. And this is in Central Standard Time. But this, isn't no, this is really, again, no big surprise. Guess when most tornadoes happen across that huge domain? What time do they normally happen wherever? Late afternoon into the evening hours, right? That's, that's our traditional time that we see. That's exactly what we see here again. One of the things that's interesting is 54% of all interstate tornadoes occurred during the times of 4 p.m. and 9 p.m. Central Daylight Time. So just in that five-hour window, uh, we see more than half of the tornadoes occurring in that period. So just mentally jotting down your memory, during 4 to 9 p.m., just naturally climatologically, it's your enhanced threat to be on the roadway. One of the other things we see, though, is a lag and actually the vehicle impact tornadoes. We see the red spike up, and then the red starts spiking down. But what do we see with the blue? We actually see the blue spiking up on the, on the back edge of the initial interstate tornado spike. Again, what this means to us is that's nighttime, and that's, again, the higher probability of when you're going to be impacted by a tornado 
soon as you lose that light, maybe the storm is on a borderline wet classic supercell situation, maybe it's embedded in a squall line, whatever the case, you're not going to see it very good chance at nighttime, and that's leading to a higher likelihood, a higher probability of being impacted by a tornado at night. One of the other things we looked at are, were the tornado fatalities associated with interstates uh, over that 19-year peri period. We had eight tornadoes resulting in nine direct fatalities. This is just a list of them. Luckily, we didn't have any in Nebraska. Uh, but some of these you'd, rec uh, you'd recognize, of course, Oklahoma, the May 3rd, 99. Uh, Jack talked a little bit about that earlier. There isn't really any strong preference for a day versus night, at least on this limited data set. Uh, with these tornadoes, three of them occurred at, uh, during the day, five at night, so there wasn't any strong signal with that. One of the things we did see that were a fairly strong signal, uh, however, was the intensity of these tornadoes. Uh, generally speaking, 88% of these tornadoes were of EF3 intensity or higher, and that's very, very similar to, to other tornado studies. Other tornado studies, again, have looked at significant tornadoes. That's EF2 to EF5, generally speaking, 98% of those tornadoes are the resultant of what creates a fatality out there. So again, when you start getting to EF3s and higher, you really start talking about some pretty stout tornadoes that have a serious threat to life and property. And, the, and we'll move on to that. The other thing we wanted to know, though, is with these people that, that did perish on these roadways, were there specific circumstances that increased their threat to be in a bad situation? And, and it turns out there actually was. Two of the deaths were actually under overpasses. The way storm data, and officially we classified to, uh, tornado fatalities, is even if the individual left their vehicle to go hide under an overpass, that still gets counted as a vehicle uh, death, okay? So in this case, the people left the safety of their vehicles to go hide under an overpass, and there was two fatalities with that, so they were outside of their vehicles. Two other of the deaths were from debris inside the vehicle, generally speaking, a projectile went through the window and, and struck the individual. What the question there was, did they duck below the window line? Obviously, if you're driving like this and, and a lot of bad stuff starts flying your way, you're probably not in the right position to be dealing with the best situation there. There was another death at, uh, right there off the interstate on a semi, semi just sitting there getting some sleep. There's some question whether the driver actually was taking a nap. There was another death in the sleeper portion of a semi. It, it's, it's probably fairly likely that the individual sleeping back there didn't have a seat belt on. And then, you know, it's hard to say after that. There was one death in a van where a person was ejected. It's hard to say whether they had a seat belt on or not. But when we start breaking down and looking at these tornado, tornado fatalities and where they started occurring, there's starting to be some question, too. Could they have done something perhaps to, to mitigate their exposure or their potential uh, for, for what ended up happening? So we kind of go down, this leads us into the recommended protective actions. And, and what would you do in this case of a scenario? Well, we'll actually throw this to you. And, and let's say we're driving west and we've got this rapidly rotating wall cloud east of us, or rather west of us. We're driving right to it. And as you can see, this individual is on a turnpike. So first off, do you have a plan in action? What would you do? Any guesses? I mean, there's no tornado yet, right? So, so what would be your first plan of action? Definitely watch it. You want to have at least what? A game plan in place, right? So what's your game plan in place? Find a ditch, you think? Get information. 
That's exactly right. Really, the, a, a lot of this, not all these situations, but a lot of these situations can be at least lessened or mitigated by just having good information available, okay? That's really the first step. So there's some questions. What would you do if the storm produces a tornado right now? Okay, do you stop? Do you gun it? Do you try to turn around? These are difficult questions. The other thing to keep in mind, too, is that kind of the rules change for an urban versus rural area. You know, if you think about it in a rural area, you've got some flexibility to do what you need to do, perhaps. But let's say you're downtown Omaha at 5 p.m. What's going to be happening in this situation? Rush hour traffic, exactly. Gridlock traffic. The rules start changing, don't they? All of a sudden, it's not as easy to know, you know exactly what you're going to do. And that really comes down to this right here. Your action is going to equal your specific circumstances. Taking a look up here, again, kind of the progression of what you'd first do. Your first steps, if you see a tornado, and, and you know, maybe it just happened to develop right there, you had good information, but you're in a situation where things are starting to get a little hairy, okay? First thing is first, you're going to want to attempt to identify your nearest suitable shelter. And again, the suitable shelter we talked about was a basement. This is going to be some kind of interior room on a lower floor, even maybe a gas station in the, if they have a cooler. But the key is, again, if those structures are available, right? So if you're maybe in an urban area, maybe you can actually go run to, to get shelter somewhere, you know, by parking and trying to get to a good shelter. Maybe you can exit off in time and be well proactive if you know a tornado is heading towards your general area, be proactive maybe, exit off that interstate and try to find shelter. But as we well know, in rural areas, it's not that simple. In fact, you might have 10 miles before your next exit. So maybe next step now is to make every effort to drive away from the tornado. How many, kind of, does that kind of take you back and what, what have been the Weather Service's call to action statements for all the last 20 years? What does it say, never try to what? What do y'all think about that? How okay, let's say this. Let's say you're in Hershey, Nebraska on I-80. How fast can your car go? <laughs> it's a valid question, right? How, how fast can your car go? Well, some cars may not be able to go very fast. Mine is a Taurus. It can't go all that fast. Um, but it can go, your car can probably go 80 miles an hour, right? Traditionally, how fast do tornadoes move? 35, 40 miles an hour. Let's do the math. Why would you not try to outrun that tornado? If you know the direction of the tornado. There's really no reason, right? You should try to get away from that situation. That's the bottom line. The bottom line really is if you have the opportunity and you know which way it's moving, don't just stop. Get away. It's time to go. Don't put yourself in a situation. But it's interesting, though, because we've been telling people for a very long time, don't try to outrun it. Well, guess what people did on May 3rd, 99? They didn't try to outrun it. And they actually stopped to look for a ditch, and they waited 15 minutes before the tornado got there. That's a problem, okay? So that's something, that's part of the game plan, okay? If you know which way it's moving, and you obviously have a path to get out of that situation, it's almost common sense. Yes, try to outrun that tornado. Don't wait around for it and let it hit you. Sometimes there's situations, though, where it doesn't work out well. And that's where we start moving into this last resort situation. If no shelter is available and the tornado's nearing, 
okay? And we've got situations where that happens. Traffic issues, we just kind of alluded to that. Rush hour in Omaha, that's going to be a problem, okay? Another thing that Jack mentioned, and he showed a great picture earlier today, overpass congestion, people act with accents. All of a sudden, you're driving, you think you got that clear shot away from that tornado, and guess what precedes a tornado a lot of times? Rain, and then what? Big hail. What do people want to do to protect their Mustang? <laughs> right? They want to park under the overpass, and they don't want to park on the shoulder. They want to line it all the way out across the interstate. It never fails. You wouldn't, I, I'm out chasing. You wouldn't believe how many times that happens. It, do, it just doesn't matter if it's traffic. Big hail, softballs, they're parking under that overpass. So all of a sudden, you're trying to get away from this tornado, and you've got a line of stacked cars, maybe 10 cars deep, that have stopped because they're all under that overpass, because initially because of the hail. So now you can't get away. The other thing about accidents, we kind of talked about that, people start panicking, and rightfully so. When you start seeing something that's very violent heading towards you, it's not a comfortable situation and probably one you've never seen before, you're going to start doing some things that you just do, right? So you might start driving the opposite way on the interstate just because you've got to get away from this tornado. Or maybe you wouldn't, but maybe the next car would. So all of a sudden, there starts being maybe some accidents. Long story short, there's traffic issues sometimes that do, do not allow you to safely get away from the tornado. The other type thing we kind of touched on just briefly, turnpikes. Turnpikes are a nightmare when it comes to tornadoes. If anybody's ever, who's been up the Kansas Turnpike from Wichita to like Topeka? How many exits are there? Not very many. And, and in fact, outside of Wichita and Emporia, maybe three, maybe four. Three places in a 90-mile uh, period to turn around. That's not good, okay? So turnpikes essentially, you know, for a better way to put it, can be death traps when you're talking about tornadoes and turnpikes. A very, very dangerous scenario. Same thing about the center median. Now, I, you know, my memory's horrible, but if I go down south on I-35 from Oklahoma City to Dallas, isn't there railing and, and concrete medians almost the whole way down there? There's no turning around. There's no quickly going over that center median. And let's say if that wasn't even there, in most interstates, sometimes there is kind of like water-filled or almost muddy-type situation where you might get stuck. So long story short, there's situations where you may not be able to turn around or there's traffic issues where you can't get away. This is where it comes right back, though. Your action is going to be determined on your specific circumstances. How violent does the tornado look? And, you know, that's, that's really subjective. There's not really a way you can do that. But, you know, how big is it? Is it something that you're comfortable maybe staying where you're at or maybe bumping up the road one way or the other? Is there a really deep ditch or culvert nearby? Or is it just completely flat land where there's nothing available? You know, all this is going to determine what you should do. But what I would say is, and so, who said, who, I mean, I'm, going to, I'm going to get somebody here, in a good way, of course. All right, who said they would take shelter in a ditch no matter what? We've changed a little bit now. This is interesting. Okay, so let's just say that, because honestly, that's what we've been saying for 20 years, right? Just no matter what, abandon your car for a ditch. Do, do we know why we started saying that? Does anybody know what kind of research was done on that? Oh, well, actually, there wasn't any. Um, it was kind of a reactive type thing from after the Wichita Falls tornado and a few other events in Huntsville, Alabama. There was all of a sudden a lot of vehicle-related deaths from tornadoes, and there was this very strong spike 
that started occurring. Well, it was, it was fairly easy at the time to say, clearly these are death traps for people. There has to be a better alternative. The thing is, maybe it is a better alternative, maybe there isn't. The key is that there's still the, re- the jury's still out. The research is not done. We'll touch on that in a second. Back in June of 2009, the American Red Cross and the Weather Service revised their safety recommendations for this type of last resort situation, okay? Part of this has to do with mobile homes. If you know anybody who lives in a mobile home or if you do live in a mobile home, I don't have this up here, but the very first part of this actually says, if you're in a mobile home, has anybody seen this? What are you supposed to do now? Get in your car and go if there isn't a designated suitable shelter nearby. Don't try to wait around your mobile home. You actually will be better off in your car than you will be in your, mer- in your mobile home. That is pretty much a guarantee, okay? So pass that word along as time goes on. But we'll get it to, to related to the traffic issue all of a sudden. Let's say you are trying to get away from that tornado. Your seatbelt's on, right? You're trying to get away because that's what a normal person would do. They're not going to wait for a tornado to hit them. So you're trying to get away. If flying debris starts occurring while you're driving, pull over and park. Now you have two options as the last resort option. Number one, stay in the car with your seatbelt on. Put your head down below the window line, okay? Covering your hands in a blanket if possible. Kind of what the top left picture is doing, okay? Trust me, this person, uh, if he could, and this is a real situation, they'd be even getting lower than this, but they, they were polite and did what they could for the picture. But if there's a tornado, this is something that you're going to want to do. Cover your hands, get below, if there isn't a ditch present. The other thing is, if you can get safely noticeable below ground level, okay? This isn't like a gradual little culvert, you know, off the side of the interstate. We're talking a fairly deep ditch that also isn't water-filled, okay, where you can actually get underground, okay? Then maybe that's your best alternative by exiting your car and going to that area, doing the same thing again, covering your head with your hands. There's all sorts of issues and caveats, though, because, you know, the thing to keep in mind, We'll come back to this picture, but just think about this picture and the, the car in the ditch. The key is here is that your choice should be driven by your specific circumstances. Not every scenario is going to be the same, and unfortunately, it's not all cookie cutter. We talked about this earlier around, oh, about 1130. Highway overpasses, yes or no? No. I think we've spent almost 10-something years now doing this. I think things are getting better. I think the word is getting out. Uh, but anyway... This is back in May 3rd, 99, and I'm sure some, several of y'all know the story of this. Oklahoma has really interesting red clay, and during that tornado, it kicked up a lot of that red clay with the water, turned it to mud, and splattered all that red clay underneath this overpass. The exception are these little white areas, which are actually the outline of people that were hiding underneath it. Okay, That's this picture over here. This is the other picture. Again, they were using an overpass as a shelter. Look how far away this tornado is. There, it's, it, it's possible to get away from something like this. And literally, they're, they're waiting to be a sitting duck from an, an F5 tornado uh, that's approaching them. So that's something we know. We know that highway overpasses just simply aren't an option. So now we have to move on to the two last resorts. And again, that is either remaining inside a vehicle or taking shelter in a ditch. And I, I put purposely a deep ditch because, you know, there's, there's, there's pros and cons to each one of these situations. Obviously, the ditch, the idea behind this is this. Just in physics, okay, with a tornado, believe it or not, a tornado has to go to zero miles an hour somewhere underneath it, right? 
It can't just go to the, you know, deep depths of the earth and drill down. So believe, you know, somewhere in that most violent tornado right there, maybe it's just an inch above ground line, maybe even a half an inch, whatever, the wind is zero miles an hour, okay? That's, that's a fact. So the idea behind it is you can actually get into a very deep ditch, okay, where that wind-blown projectiles and the debris are, are well above your head and you're hopefully safe underneath that very deep, you know, depression in the ground. Perhaps you won't get blown out and perhaps most of the debris will be sailing over you and not impacting you. Obviously, it's not foolproof. The same thing goes with this. If there isn't a really well-obvious ditch, the metal frames of a car are made to withstand pretty good impacts out there on the road. In fact, we've seen stuff where people roll 18, 20 times and they come out without just a few scratches. Okay, so things in a vehicle aren't necessarily all that unsafe either. There's pretty good metal structures, especially if you can get below that window line and you're not going to be impacted by debris. Again, none of this is foolproof, okay? Unfortunately, these last resort options aren't without obvious high risk. This isn't always going to work every time. This was an EF4 tornado right here that Im impacted one of the interstate travelers. The car's obviously mangled. It rolled many, many times across both lanes of the interstate into a ditch, which hopefully somebody wasn't taking shelter in that ditch. Um, so, but he, he walked out with a couple broken legs, a broken neck, but he's fully recovered. Okay, so even though you know, it was a bad situation. Even though you, you might roll, and even though you might have all sorts of things happening inside that vehicle, you might come out in the end okay and not dead. Same thing comes here. You know, in many cases, this might work, but there's obvious cases where there's a lot of variables that happen in a tornado. You got flying debris. You got lightning. You got softball-sized hail. There's all sorts of things. The moment you walk outside of that car and be exposed to just not even just the tornado itself, with the flash flooding, lightning, hail, all sorts of stuff. So the point making is that it's all going to be based on that quick moment that you have to make with your specific circumstances. But regardless, neither one of these options are foolproof, and they're with, with still very high risk. Eventually, more research is going to hopefully shed some light into really what the best protective measure is in this scenario. It might ultimately be a co combination of both. If you see a pretty good deep ditch, Maybe you want to go ahead and put your car in it. I know it sounds kind of crazy, but if you really think about what you're doing, you're putting almost half the car below the main wind line of the tornado, you're ducking below that line, and you're also still enclosed in a metal body of protection. Maybe ultimately that's where we go. I wouldn't, again, it's all based on your specific circumstances. It's just dependent on what's available at your time and if you can't get away. Again, the thing I go back to though is have an action plan, preparedness, and try to get away from being in that situation. If you happen to be in that situation, then you have to make a decision what to do from that point. The other thing I want to briefly talk, uh, talk about is hopefully new technologies and ways we can better serve you in the weather service as things goes on. One of the things we talked about, remember, nobody besides, I think, three of y'all knew where Moralton, Arkansas is, but how many people know where I-40 is? Wow, not many people know where I-40 is. Okay, good. And that's, that's what counts. Yeah. Okay, so I, here's the point. Interstates are extremely crucial points of reference when you're disseminating warning information. People may not know where, you know, Lamar, Arkansas is or whatever, but you're going to want to know where I-80 is. And if you're driving and you see a really dark cloud and there's a tornado warning and it mentions I-80, something should at least go off in your head saying this might be a problem. 
So one of the things the Weather Service can do for you is try to put warning information that is related to interstates. We took a quick look at roughly four or five years worth of tornado warnings for that domain. We wanted to see how things were uh, going. There was 161 interstate tornadoes during that time. Out of that, 145 tornado warnings were issued. Uh, 16 of those tornadoes, there was not a tornado warning issued. Honestly, those are very good numbers. Um, but when we start talking about how interstates or mile markers were referenced, uh, things didn't stack up so well. 114 of those 145 tornado warnings had no mention at all of interstates or mile markers, and again, a few of them did. That equates to only 22% of the tornado warnings in this area actually referenced interstates or mile markers. This is something that's very easily remedied. In fact, there's a way we can automatically generate that type of information in a warning. So hopefully what we'll see here in the, future, in the very near future is virtually every weather service office providing that type of mile marker information of where we're anticipating that tornado potentially to go through. And that's going to also help lead into the next thing where we start having technologies that can alert people to very specific information. There's a lot of private companies that can parse out that information in a tornado warning and send it to you right away and say, hey, mile marker 38, watch out, you're approaching a tornado warning. There's other things that we can do. I'm sure you all have seen plenty of these, especially in the Omaha area with the dynamic message signs. That's something that I hope as time goes on and there are background in the works going on where convective warning information might be able to be broadcasted over these as soon as a warning is issued. So at least, again, you have a heads up that gives you that first step so you don't just all of a sudden see a tornado and you have to decide within 30 seconds what you're going to do. You might at least start having a game plan. Maybe you can exit off the interstate and let the storm pass, whatever the situation. There's also a 511 service in most areas, including Nebraska. We hope that that eventually will be a service where you can call for free of charge and get warning information as well. Uh, all, so, all sorts of different things, media and uh, Department of Transportation radio broadcast. Hopefully we can maybe utilize that. There's also a challenge with law enforcement officials. Sometimes they'll close the interstate in the path of a tornado. But you better make sure that information is as good as you're going to do if you're going to close that interstate. Because if you're off by three miles, let's say, and that line of traffic that now extends 18 miles is going to be with that tornado paralleling it, well, that's not good. Okay, that's really bad, in fact. So, again, it's all about making sure that information gets it, the clarity and the accuracy. There's also really new cool, uh, all sorts of, iPhone's amazing, all sorts of really cool new apps. Uh, there's actually one app that you can have, it's a paying service. Now, may, maybe eventually it won't be. But as you know, with the iPhone, you can actually get GPS-enabled phones, right? Put on your dash, it knows where you're at. Well, there's actually a service, if you have that running, and, it, and you're subscribed to it, it will actually send you the moment you enter a tornado warning polygon saying, you're on I-80, you've just driven into a tornado warning polygon, and it sends you the text and a graphical display of what's happening. So you can kind of see the wave of the future with this technology. Hopefully, as time goes on, there'll be more and more people informed to make really good decisions before being put in that last resort situation. So just to conclude here, one of the things, again, we know, motorists do have that increase, especially on interstates, uh, of the different severe weather hazards simply because whether the lack of familiar, familiarity with local towns or whatnot. One of the things we want to keep harping on is interstate and mile markers serve as a very important reference to those that are traveling out there. We want to be able to provide you with the best information possible and through that, hopefully, multi-agency collaboration and future technologies will make that a reality for you. There is certainly a paradigm shift of new last resort safety actions 
Keep that in mind. Think about it tonight as you drive back to wherever you're driving and just put yourself in that scenario thinking, what would you do right here, right now in that specific circumstance? And it kind of starts, maybe gets the wheels going. So if you ever happen to have the rare you know, opportunity to see a tornado very close by and you have to make a quick decision, it won't be a panic decision. It'll be a very well thought out decision. And with that, there's actually going to be a paper in the Electronic uh, Severe Storms Meteorology. It's ejssm.org here next month that summarizes this in more detail if y'all are interested as well. And with that, I'll take questions, and I thank y'all very much for having me. Barb, you come on on down. And then Sandra, come on over here. All right, is there a quick question or two that we can have to get right over here and let me get you on a mic so we can get that covered? Just kind of curious, has there been any, uh, dis any discussion about talking with vehicle manufacturers about uh, in-car uh, weather alert systems? Uh, there has, and, and, and some of the higher-end vehicles actually do have weather radio as a channel in the FM thing. What would be fantastic if, is if we could make that more readily available to, to workers where they can just get that weather band and have that. But, you know, with the cumbersome weather radio, it's, just, it's very unlikely normal people that are just driving on vacation will take one of those and you know have it battery operated right well just thinking like uh even just a a, a little thing on the dash that like onstar or something well similar to onstar but with a dedicated weather band with alert yeah. built into the thing i think people are looking into it but as of right now we're, we're not very close to that that's a good it's a good point though yes yeah where are you at i can't see you okay that's okay. You say your question. We need to get it on mic, so I'll repeat it. Okay. Has anybody questioned the impact of the storm caused not safe for the body? Okay. Let me make sure I'm, I'm hearing you correctly. As in, you mean like the Okay, so uh, let, me, let me try to repeat your question and correct me if I'm wrong. What first question was, uh, has, is there injury or death information that storm spotters have been involved with out spotting related kind of to this? Was that, okay. And to answer your question, all, all that's universal. The storm data that we looked at would include any member of the public, whether it's storm spotters, chasers, the general public. So all that information's out there. And on interstates, it doesn't seem, it, to, from what we've seen, we haven't seen any storm spotters or chasers killed on interstates because of a tornado. But again, on secondary highways, that's a different story, but this is just, just interstates. And the second part of your question was... Uh, oh, yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah, the question was, uh, what, what, what should uh, s local spotters do when they're on a, on a hill and faced with a, a similar dangerous scenario? And, and, and the question that is, is probably still similar to those guidelines. I mean, if, if you know you're going to be in a, a scenario, let's say a, a rapidly rotating wall cloud's approaching, 
your report isn't as valuable to us as your life. So if, if you start feeling threatened that, you know, in five, ten minutes, something bad's about to happen right where I'm at, I think almost any weather service office would encourage you it's time to move because we, we want you to be safe. If something happens where it was unexpected, then those same rules are going to apply even on secondary roadways. S try to get away from it, the situation as it is. If, if debris starts really approaching your car and there's nothing you can do, then you, you really do have maybe 30 seconds to make a very quick educated decision. If you have a deep ditch, maybe you, 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 know, you go there and take shelter. If it's just completely flat, maybe you want to park your car, leave the car running to utilize those airbags maybe, uh, but get your head and your body below the window line with the seatbelt on. Yeah, thank, thank you thank very you. much, Scott. We're going to call it quits at this point, and